Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 27, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we encounter David for the first time. And Samuel has with great personal pain done his job now in firing King Saul at God's instructions. However, King Saul has no intention of relinquishing the throne. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that Saul didn't understand what that great prophet did in pronouncing Saul's dismissal, nor think that it wasn't to be effective immediately. The same rebellious spirit of Shaul that caused God to react against the king of Israel in this devastating manner remained intact. And so Saul was determined to ignore the Lord's will in favor of his own. Now, since Samuel had treated, had retreated rather to his hometown of Ramah, there's no, was no one that could possibly challenge the validity of Saul's claim to be ruler over Israel. Apparently, the only ones who even knew that Saul no longer had God's backing were Saul and Samuel. In fact. Saul went to great length to have Samuel make a public appearance with him at Gilgal all right, when Israel was celebrating the victory over Amalek so that nobody would be the wiser. Now, Shmuel knew full well why King Shaul had insisted he come with him to that victory celebration. And one can only wonder why he would be such a willing participant in this grand deception. I, I suppose we can speculate that he reckoned that it was necessary for Israel to have a leader in place since God had yet to point out the new one. Probably is a better alternative than having none at all. Israel, after all, was generally at this time on constant war footing. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, the Philistines had again gathered strength and were a, a great and present threat to the Hebrews. Having no leader in such a time would, would have been a sign of weakness and represented a perfect opportunity for the Philistines to gain even more ground. Well, as we reread chapter 16, keep the bigger picture in mind. King Saul was representative of the anti-king, while young David was representative of the righteous king. King Saul rose to power because the unfaithful people of Israel demanded, demanded him. David was set apart at God's election and choice. King Saul was a demonstration of what happens when the human intellect and the evil inclination rules. King David would be a demonstration of what happens when God's will is set above all else. Also keep in mind Israel's geopolitical situation at this time. Israel was an uneasy confederation of divided loyalties. 
To say that Israel had a king in King Saul is a very generally very general and overly simplistic statement with many caveats attached to it. By no means was Israel recognized by her neighbors as a sovereign nation. There was no firm border. There was no capital city. There was no standing army to speak of, just kind of a militia. In fact, previously I pointed out that when the scriptures speak of military actions taken by King Saul, it will always speak of Israel on the one hand and Judah on the other. Because they were nearly independent entities. Now whatever the relationship was between the bulk of the tribes that were located to the north of Canaan um, and the large population of the tribe of Judah that dominated the south, probably the best characterization would be as some sort of a reluctant tribal cooperative all right, that, that functioned as long as each side's self-interest would be adequately served. So let's reread 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's really kind of a momentous chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's page 315 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Samuel, How much longer are you going to go on grieving for Saul now that I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Yeshai, Jesse, the Beit Lachmi, because I have chosen myself a king from among his sons. And Shmuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll have me killed. And Adonai said, Take a female cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Adonai. Summon Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will tell you what, you, tell you what to do, and you are to anoint for me the person I point out to you. Samuel did what Adonai said, and he arrived at Bethlehem. The leaders of the city came trembling to meet him and asked, Are you coming in peace? And he answered, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to Adonai. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and summoned them to the sacrifice. And when they had come, he looked at Eliav and said, This has to be God's anointed here before him. But Adonai said to Samuel, Don't pay attention to how he looks, how tall he is, because I've rejected him. Adonai doesn't see human, uh, see the way humans see. Humans look at the outward appearance, but Adonai looks at the heart. Then Yeshai called Avinadav and presented him to Samuel. But he said, Adonai hasn't chosen this one either. Yeshai presented Shammah. And against, again Samuel said, Adonai hasn't chosen this one either. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel, but Samuel told Jesse, Adonai has not chosen these. Are all your sons here? And Samuel asked Jesse, and he replied, There is still the youngest. He's out there tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him back, because we won't sit down to eat until he gets here. He sent and brought him in. With ruddy cheeks, red hair, bright eyes, he was a good-looking fellow. Nat and I said, Stand up and anoint him. He's the one. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him there in his brother's presence. And from that day on, the spirit of Adonai would fall upon David with power. So Samuel set out and he went to Ramah. 
Now the spirit of Adonai had left Saul. Instead, an evil spirit from Adonai would suddenly come over him. Saul's servant said to him, Do you notice that there's an evil spirit from Adonai that suddenly overcomes you? Let our Lord now command your servants who are here with you to look for a man who knows how to play the lyre. Then if the evil spirit from Adonai comes over you, he will play, and it will do you good. Saul said to his servants, Find me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Here, I've seen one of the sons of Jesse, the Beit Lachmi, who knows how to play. He's a brave soldier. He can fight. He chooses his words carefully. He's pleasant looking. Besides, Adonai is with him. So Saul kept uh, sent messengers to Jesse saying, Send me David your son, who is out with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a bottle of wine, and a kid, and sent them with David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul and presented himself to him. And Saul took a great liking to him, made him his armor bearer. Saul sent a message to Yishai. Please, let David stay in my service, because I'm pleased with him. So it was that whenever the evil spirit from God came over Saul, David would play the lyre. David would take the lyre and play it with the result that Saul would find relief. He'd feel better as the evil spirit left him. The prophet Samuel is directed by God to leave his one-man pity party behind and go to the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in the territory of Judah. And there the Lord would point out his choice for the next king of Israel. Now Bethlehem is an interesting location in this story for, for several reasons, not the least of which is that since it's in the territory of Judah, it indicates that there could not help but be a pretty radical shift in the politics of Israel's government. So King Saul's loyalties, we understand, lay with the northern tribes and their loyalty with him. If the next king was to be from Judah, it sure wouldn't be with the blessings of the northern tribes who represented the majority population of the promised land. So with that in mind, we can more easily understand the goings-on in this and the next several chapters. When in verses 1 and 2, Yehovah instructs Samuel to pick up his horn of anointing and go to Bethlehem, Samuel is instantly fearful. Why? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, he's afraid of the increasingly unpredictable Saul. Any man who would blatantly disregard the Lord's declaration that he was no longer the king of Israel and instead defiantly remain on the throne, just daring God to do something about it. This was a dangerous man who would brook no challengers or insubordination. And secondly, Samuel was uneasy dealing with Judah. Because he knew Judah's leadership wouldn't easily welcome or trust him. After all, Samuel's personal heritage was with Ephraim. The chief tribe among the northern tribes. And his loyalty, as far as anybody knew, remained with Saul, who was a northerner. Samuel, venturing into Bethlehem to powwow with the powerful family of Jesse 
could easily have been interpreted by Judah's clan leaders as spying or treachery, and by King Saul and the northern coalition as treason. So naturally Samuel inquires of God just how he's to survive such a dicey venture, and he's instructed to take a heifer with him and tell the elders of Bethlehem that the purpose of his visit is to make a sacrifice. Now, such a thing could then be thought of by both sides as an attempt by Samuel to try and foster better relations between the north and the south. And Samuel shows his loyalty and his faithfulness to God by being obedient despite his well-founded anxieties and no further details are provided to him. Well, as Samuel arrives in Beit Lechem, which means house of bread, the leaders of that city rush to meet him equally as fearful as Samuel because they suspected something was up. I mean, Bethlehem was not on Samuel's usual circuit that involved mainly the central Canaan area. So the Bethlehemites were apprehensive as to the real purpose of this honor of Samuel wanting to come and offer a sacrifice with them. The elders of the city ask him, do you come in Shalom? And he responds that this is a friendly visit. And considering the ongoing cold war now between Judah and the tribes, Saul, and therefore Samuel, represented the leaders of Judah. And they undoubtedly wondered if Samuel had come to curse them or perhaps rebuke them or just as problematic to once again urge the leaders to turn their loyalty over to King Saul for the good of all Israel. Now the sacrifice that Samuel was preparing for by bringing that female cow is called in Hebrew a seva. Our, our, our Bibles nearly universally translate the Hebrew phrase ba seva as come with me to the sacrifice. And while indeed the seva is a, a Torah-ordained holy sacrifice, it's a particular kind of sacrifice among several kinds. This is a lesser kind. It doesn't demand that it be performed on a biblical ordained occasion. It's a voluntary sacrifice. It can be performed anytime a person wants to thank or honor the Lord and it's also most suitable for a feast because all but the smallest portion of the meat of the sacrifice can be eaten by the lay people. Thus, when one of Israel's recognized dignitaries would come to a prominent location for a political visit and a festive meal was called for, a zeva all right, generally was also performed, and that's what we see happening here. It's pretty normal. Thus, other than for his surprising presence, nothing Samuel suggested to the leaders of Judah was, was out of the ordinary or presented any cause for alarm. Now, because Samuel was, at that time, the supreme religious figure for all the tribes of Israel, even though there were two high priests active in Israel that we know of, and probably at least a couple more rivals as well, his first instruction was for the participants to consecrate themselves as a preparation for this altar sacrifice. Now, this this would likely have primarily entailed no more 
than washing their, their garments and taking a bath. Now the narrator says that Yeshai and his sons, Jesse and his sons, were invited to the sacrifice and feast. But were left to wonder if it was only Jesse's family or if others were also in attendance. But the narrator also wastes no time in immersing us into God's selection process for the next king of Israel. Verse 6 says that Samuel looked at Jesse's son Eliav, which was Jesse's firstborn. And he thought to himself that certainly this must be the one he was sent to anoint. But the Lord told Samuel that he shouldn't look at Eliav's physical characteristics and assume that this his imposing appearance or his family status as the oldest were the same criteria that the Lord used to choose. And also here in verse 7 we get a foundational God principle that even the most devout follower of Messiah has a very difficult time in obeying. He says, Jehovah doesn't see the way humans see. Humans look at outward appearance. But Jehovah looks at the heart. Let me remind you that in the Bible, heart means mind. Thus, despite an implicit Christian doctrine that we, th- we can think one way and feel another, and that God looks mostly upon how we feel in our heart as a means of judging us, no such doctrine actually exists in the Bible. It's only that in ancient times, they believed that rational thought, the seat of the intellect, took place in the heart organ. Therefore, feeling, emotions, was generally not assigned to the heart, but rather it was dispersed around the body, depending on the nature of the feeling, right? to such organs as the kidneys and the liver. It's interesting that Samuel instantly assumed that this tallest son must have been God's choice. You know, we shouldn't be too hard on him for this. After all, King Saul was described as a head and shoulders taller than his fellow Benjamites. And this seemed to be the primary tangible factor, at that time at least, in God's selection of Saul. But let's understand that in all eras, leaders were and still are usually chosen for their charisma and physical stature generally plays a role in that charisma factor even more since all ancient societies felt that their gods and goddesses were involved in selecting their royal leaders and that kings and queens reflected the characteristics of their their gods. That a handsome king or a beautiful queen was a given. Well, this belief wasn't lost on the Hebrews. After Samuel looks at Eliab, and God says no, he then spies the next eldest, who is Avinadav. But he gets the same verdict. Yeshai presents son number three, Shema. God rejects him. After standing before all of Yeshai's sons in turn, the Lord 
didn't approve of any of the seven. So Samuel asked Jesse if this is all of his sons because it's obvious to Samuel that someone in Jesse's family is the new anointed king. Jesse says there is one more, the youngest. But he's out tending the family sheep. Samuel sends for this last son and the Lord approves of him. The son's name is David. And even though he's not physically dominant in stature, he does have kingly traits. Now very likely, something like lots was being used by Samuel to determine which son would be the chosen one. There's nothing to indicate that Samuel was having audible conversation with the Lord. But this passage also creates an interesting problem that Bible skeptics enjoy pointing to. Because we're told that after looking at Jesse's seven sons, Samuel calls for David, seemingly indicating that David is the eighth son. But in 1 Chronicles 2, we're told this. 1 Chronicles 2.12 Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered Eliab his firstborn, Abinadab his second, Shema his third, Nathaniel the fourth, Redai fifth, Otzaim sixth, David seventh. To further complicate matters, later on in First Chronicles, we find this reference to Jesse's sons. First Chronicles twenty seven sixteen. Over the tribes of Israel, leader of the Reubenites, Eliezer, the son of Zihri. Of the Simeonites, Shvatah, the son of Maacha. Of Levi, Hashaviah, the son of Kimuel. Of Aaron, Sadok. Of Judah, Elihu, one of David's brothers. So here is a brother of David, Elihu who has not been previously mentioned. If we add him in, now we come up with eight sons and not seven. What's happening here? Are there seven sons or are there eight sons? Well, there's no end of academic speculation that ranges from copyist error to two differing traditions about David and his family being interwoven in in, in the various biblical accounts, to even possibly just an ancient Hebrew traditional manner that families were spoken of, especially when it came to royal families. Skeptics prefer to think of this as a simple case of scriptural contradiction that proves the Bible is anything but infallible. Now I can't tell you which of any of this is correct, but I do think that there is an interesting clue in 1 Samuel 16 verse 11 that is suspicious enough to at least consider as the simplest and thus the most probable solution to our problem. Where we have Samuel saying, at least in English, are all your sons here? That's not a good translation at all. It's not accurate. The Hebrew is ha tamamu hane arim, all right, meaning are the boys or your sons complete? Are your boys complete? Now, without doubt, simplifying it to are these all of your sons? That's the proper sense of it. 
But we also need to understand the commonly understood correlation between Hebrew numbers, letters, and symbolic meanings within ancient Hebrew and Eastern culture. You see, the number seven is the divine number of completeness. The number seven is the ideal number. Thus we find, oh, that Job had seven sons, Kareth had seven sons. We even read that Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, was said to be better than seven sons. So since Hebrew literary form paid great attention to selecting words that could be coupled together to emphasize a point, I don't think it was any coincidence that Samuel asks if Jesse's sons that are before him are complete. And then we're told that there were seven in later documents. The number seven and the word complete are parallels. All right? And they complement each other and essentially denote the same thing. And remember that all this that we're currently reading in our Bibles was for hundreds and hundreds of years handed down word of mouth before it was ever written down. Okay? This is why I often point out that the Bible, at least the Old Testament, is much better comprehended if we read it out loud with our mouths than actually just reading it silently with our eyes. The sentence structures of the Old Testament especially were designed to be spoken and heard in a manner conducive to interesting storytelling and thus for easier remembering so that it could then be passed on to the next generation in the same way. Was David the seventh son or the eighth son of Jesse? You know, I don't think that theologically it matters. In fact, which son he was, other than being the youngest of them, that's not even the point of the passage. The point is that Jesse's family was assigned the ideal number of seven, completeness, as an easily recognizable, admirable, an appropriate characteristic so that future listeners could understand that a God thing was going on here. Since Israel's first real king was being selected and anointed from this divinely blessed family. That's the point. Okay? Of course, this is generally lost on us Western Gentiles right? Because, but, but many Middle Easterners catch on to this symbolism even today. Well, once David was identified by the Lord, again, probably through using lots, Samuel anoints him with oil. And in verse 13, we're informed that the Spirit of the Lord now rushed upon David and was with him from that day forward. Now, the key is that we see how the Lord withdrew his spirit from Saul and essentially transferred it to David. The next king was officially selected and with the Holy Spirit equipped for the job. Thus in the next verse, 
we're told that the Spirit of God, which is now upon David, had of course left Saul. But now Saul has instead received an evil spirit from Adonai. Oh boy. There is a can of worms waiting to be opened. So let's open it. It's been a very long time since we've had a discussion about where evil comes from. In fact, I think we haven't dealt directly with this subject probably since early on in Genesis. And we just don't have the time to go into this in in, in any kind of real depth. So you can refer to Lesson 6 of the Genesis series for a refresher on the nature and source of evil. So it was not to take up too much time with it. I want to approach this challenge by examining the several ways that we could reasonably explain what's meant by the author of this section of 1 Samuel when he says that an evil spirit from Adonai was sent to King Saul. Some say that this proves that God, from from, from whom both good and evil are derived, has indeed removed the holy and good nature of his own spirit from Saul and replaced it with a spirit of malevolence that is but another aspect of God's nature. Others say that it means that God has removed his Holy Spirit and in its place sent an evil spirit being. He sent a demon to torment the king, his punishment. Another point of view is that when the Lord withdrew from Saul, Saul's own evil nature took over since there was nothing left to counterbalance it. Some say this is just an ancient or quaint way to describe that as a result of God and Samuel abandoning Saul, Saul tumbled into depression and eventually into mental illness. Then there are variations and nuances on each of these proposals. Let's look at three key biblical passages concerning evil and its source. Don't don't turn there. I've got them written up here for the most part and I'll speak them to you. Isaiah 45.7 I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am the Lord that doeth all of these things. Amos 3.6 Shall the horn be blown in a city and the people not tremble? Shall evil befall a city and the Lord hath not done it? Lamentations 3.38 Out of the mouth of the Most High proceedeth not evil and good? See, there's no doubt from these passages that God has something to do with the existence of evil. The difficulty is, where does His responsibility begin and end for evil's existence? It's simply untenable in the Judeo-Christian faith to make evil self-existent. Since God is the only self-existent thing or being. So in some way or sense, God created and controls evil. Here, I think, is a definition of the source of evil 
that is balanced and doesn't seek to dismiss evil, as is kind of popular now, or to assign evil to God at least as part of his nature, all right, or his character. Listen to this quote. Evil is simply the absence of God. It's just like darkness and cold, a word that man has created to describe the absence of God. God did not create evil. Evil is the result of what happens when man does not have God's love present in his heart. It's like the cold that comes when there is no heat or the darkness that comes when there is no light. That was spoken by Einstein, of all people. I think Mr. Einstein nailed it, at least to a point. Evil is the absence of God just as darkness is merely the absence of light. When God is not present, evil surely is. Now this is not a lofty poetic thought. This is how the universe operates. So how do we now apply this concept to 1 Samuel 16.14 and deal with the matter of the spirit of evil that came from God and went into King Saul? First, part of our problem in dealing with this is not so much the theology as it is the language. Okay. Dr. David Samura points out that, that following Hebrew grammar rules makes the most typical English translation of an evil spirit from the Lord as incorrect. The Hebrew phrase is ruach ra'a. Ruach, spirit. Okay, ra, evil. And in this particular construction, it cannot be that Ra is an adjective, but rather it's a noun. In other words, it's not that evil describes or defines or modifies the kind of spirit. Okay? Rather it is that the presence of one brings about the other, which is actually a very typical Hebrew language construct. So the better translation is probably... God sent a spirit that causes evil, or God sent a spirit that brings forth evil. Now, the idea then is, it is not that the spirit itself is necessarily evil in nature. We see this same sort of idea, this logic, used in a number of circumstances in the Bible, such as in Proverbs 24 when it discusses men of evil. The meaning of that phrase, men of evil, in Proverbs 24, is men who do evil to others, not men whose nature is evil. You see the difference? As used here in 1 Samuel 16, 14, evil is the result of the effect of this particular spirit. Evil is not the state of being of that spirit. An evil spirit in common English speech means a spirit whose state of being is evil. A spirit that causes evil 
in common English speak, is a spirit of some kind whose actions result in evil things, calamitous things, disastrous things happening. Now that may sound like slicing the onion very thin, but you know we make these kinds of distinctions all the time in everyday life, and they're necessary. A child who does a bad thing is not a, a, not necessarily an inherently bad child. A knife designed as a weapon of war that's used to kill someone isn't necessarily constructed of homicidal metal. Money used to corrupt and purchase power is not inherently corrupt money. You see what I'm saying? We, we, we can grasp that. Thus, we see how these biblical principles of evil kind of work together. God can allow or He can not allow evil to occur. He can at times even facilitate evil to bring about His righteous purposes. So in that sense, He can control evil by His hand. We also see, and boy this is an important one, no human can be spiritually neutral. We either are occupied with a Holy Spirit or a spirit of another kind. When the Holy Spirit left Saul, another kind of spirit rushed in to fill that vacuum. It entered Saul and it resulted in a lot of evil being done. It was similar, very much similar, to the spirit that God sent to Pharaoh. Remember that? That resulted in a hardened heart, which itself resulted in evil being done. But we don't have God directly casting evil into Pharaoh's heart. The idea that this spirit is from the Lord indicates that it is either divinely permitted or allowed or directed or that merely the fact that God is not there automatically meant that this alternative spirit would come into Saul. Yet there is also divine purpose behind it. This spirit, even though it's not a Holy Spirit, will play its part in Saul's life in working out the divine plan that brings David into power and in ways hard, uh, very hard to fathom, at least at this point in the Bible, eventually it's even going to pave the way for Messiah. How often I've said that part of our challenge as those fortunate humans who are aware of, God, of being God's created creatures. Part of our challenge is how we can reliably communicate about Him with one another. The writers of the Bible face the same dilemma. God is a spirit being. He's not, he's not a physical being or a superhuman his ways are not our ways. Our vocabulary will never allow us to adequately describe those mysterious things of God that can only exist and therefore only be understood in the context of the spiritual sphere.
Thus it is so terribly important for us to comprehend the foundational principles of God that are presented to us in the Torah. Those precious few things that are comprehensible for us. So that we don't see a confounding statement in the scriptures and then simply due to our willful ignorance make something out of it that runs counter to God's nature and His justice system. The story of David's anointing is brief. And it's to the point. In fact, there is no indication that David, his brothers, or even his father, had any idea what the anointing consecrated David for. And as we think about the circumstances, and as we move forward in the story, I suspect that only Samuel knew what had actually transpired here. However, it must have been that David was at least aware of God's powerful new presence upon him, and in times such that he developed a bit of fear of losing God's presence in his life. After watching King Saul do the most paranoid and irrational things, living life as a terribly tormented man because he was living without God, David created a psalm pleading to the Lord that this not happen to him. With that understanding, let's close today by reading a portion of Psalm 51. Open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It's page 840 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're only going to read the first 15 verses. And by the way, some versions may have the verses numbered a little differently, so don't let this bother you. Psalm 51, follow with me. For the leader, a psalm of David, when Natan the prophet came to him after his affair with Bathsheba. God, in your grace, have mercy on me. In your great compassion, blot out my crimes. Wash me completely from my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my crimes. My sin confronts me all the time. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil from your perspective. So that you are right in accusing me and justified in passing sentence. True, I was born guilty. I was a sinner from the moment my mother conceived me. Still, you want truth in the inner person, so make me know wisdom in my inmost heart. Sprinkle me with oregano and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the sound of joy and gladness so that the bones you crushed can rejoice. Turn away your face from my sins. Blot out my crimes. Create in me a clean heart, God. 
Renew in me a resolute spirit. Don't thrust me away from your presence. Don't take your Ruach HaKodesh away from me. Restore my joy in your salvation. Let a willing spirit uphold me. Then I will teach the wicked your ways and sinners will return to you. You see, David knew that Saul had the Spirit of God removed from him. And it left Saul a nearly incapacitated man. David knew that it was callous sinning against God that caused God to react this way against Saul. And David knew that not only was he himself born as a sinner, born with a sinful nature, but that at times he also committed trespasses against Jehovah. Unlike Saul, however, David clung to the Lord. Unlike Saul, he contritely confessed his sin. Unlike Saul, he didn't challenge the Lord. He submitted to Him. And he knew that salvation comes only from the God of Israel and only by His grace. And David had many sleepless nights during which he wrote some of these psalms that we read today. Worrying. Worrying about losing the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And as a result, becoming a deranged man who lost his place in God's kingdom as had Saul. Saul was willing to give up the Holy Spirit if he could retain his kingly power and do things his own way. I've told many a concerned believer this, and now I'm going to tell you, assuming you've turned your life over to Messiah Yeshua that you worry about your status with the Lord occasionally, that you wrestle with it from time to time, that you have a few sleepless nights over it, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean you have little faith. To the contrary, it's to your merit. It's because you know the seriousness of the matter. You know where your salvation lies. You know you have responsibilities and obligations as a redeemed person. And that itself is a good sign. Just as it was for David, that despite your inevitable failings, you greatly value your relationship with God and you don't ever want to let it go. The Lord will never leave those who truly want Him. Even though we will stumble and fall repeatedly in our lives. We're going to continue with chapter 16 next time.